This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Leroy Butler, newly Hall of Famer, Class of 22, and you're listening to Ira and Clark on the iTest for Two podcast. that doesn't scare you, then you must be watching the Tampa Bay Bucks play. Welcome to the High Will Halloween edition of the High Test for Two. And Ira, that was pretty spooky music, but uh, anything scary right now than watching another Bucks meltdown? Well, I'm surprised you didn't say I'm Clark Judge, and no, then I can say no, I'm Ira. No, no. That you're going right past They that. know who we are by now. I'm, I'm, they know you're the sage, and I'm just your, your co-host. You know, Clark, anybody can have a bad game. Derek Brooks said that to me a couple of weeks ago. The Bucks, I think, in their championship year, I lost 45 to nothing out in Oakland. Um, but, Clark, after you lay an egg in Pittsburgh, you got to show something the following week. And this one was even worse. Your boy Brady is taking his share of hits. The main culprit for the fans is Byron Leftwich and an unimaginative offense. And Todd Bowles is not looking too good seven games into his new regime. Ian, what's scary to you, Fright Night or watching the Bucks? <laughs> Definitely watching the Bucks, and I'm uh, trying to mentally prepare myself for Thursday night because I, I my optimism is not too high right now. I think that's pretty well-founded. Well, anyway, it's Halloween weekend, and hopefully you uh, know that by now. So in keeping with the spirit of that day, I want to ask you guys a couple of questions before we get to our guests. First one is, scariest player, either today or yesterday. Ira, you've covered this league a long time. Scariest player. I'm going with a guy, Clark, that I believe they put a rule in just because of this guy. You never knew what the heck he was going to do. He was a pretty good player, but he was capable of anything. And that's Lyle Alzado. Now, Clark, to be fair, he, he acknowledged that he, he was on steroids for most or not all of his career. Right. That could have been a contributing factor. But, Clark, you saw him play. He was a scary individual. Oh, those Raiders are scary. Ian, how about you? I got, I got two. And um, maybe scary in the sense that uh, I, I, I passed over Tom Brady because I, I, I don't want to give that answer. Uh, I, I said Peyton Manning. And as a fan and someone who's watched the game uh, – I've never been scared watching another quarterback play. Uh, you know, again, aside from Brady, because I've never rooted against him, but as an opposing fan rooting against or hoping to root against Peyton Manning, it was the scariest thing. And from the defensive side, and again, this is from my uh, uh, lifetime watching football, uh, Brian Dawkins. Um, the guy, the, the intensity level of this guy was just, I mean, 150 every single day and delivered on the field. And this was back in the back when you can really deliver some hard, bone-crushing hits. So uh, two scary players, in my opinion. Well, this one's easy for me, guys. <laughs> and I remember this guy, Jack Tatum. They, oh, yeah. called, they called him assassin for a reason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if I saw him coming down the sidewalk, I'd catch a cab <laughs> to another area code. He was frightening. Okay, those, second, those, Raiders, those Raiders were something else. Oh, they, they were something else. That's right. <laughs> Glad I wasn't playing against them. And the second question, scariest team, Ira. You got a scary team? 
I do. Because when I think scare, Clark, in football, yeah. I, th- I think violence. Uh, I think defense. Me too. Uh, you know, I, I do. Uh, now, Ian might say, well, scariest team, 2007 Patriots, because nobody could stop them until they played the Giants. And they averaged like 37 points. Clark, I'm going with the chalk, the 85 Bears. Um, I still think they're the standard for modern-day defense. Clark, there's been some other great ones. Clark, they had one job. We are going to wreck the quarterback. And what are you going to do about it? And nobody can handle them, Clark. Nobody. Nobody could. And I think when you said scary team, I thought Ian was going to say you and me because he's never sure what we're going to do or come up with when we come in here. Well, well, Ira definitely took the words out of my mouth, and uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more classy. So I, I, I go away from the violence, and I go for the just the, the grace and just the absolute uh, absolute terror that the 2007 Patriots uh, put down on everyone. And as we look in this fresh new era of football over the last decade, and, you know, we see all these great offenses of basically just the last 10 years because of how the rules are, there's one that always sticks out, and Despite all the advancements in offensive rules, the 2007 Patriots still rank at the very top in a lot of these away from the rule changes. So scary team, absolutely a 2007 Patriots. Okay, I give you that, but I'm going with Ira and terror. I, I, I was terrorized as a spectator by any Raiders team in the 1970s, Ira, any <laughs> Raiders team. And, and I go back to that. Remember that first game in 1976 against the Steelers? George Atkinson, George Atkinson. Lynn yep. Swan away from the play, brutal concussion. And afterwards, Chuck Noll called him the criminal element. Of course, that lot launched a $2 million lawsuit and covering the trial was how much as fun as covering the Steelers and the Raiders. But one of the things that I remember about that trial was one of the league lawyers, after they dimmed the lights for yet another replay, of that hit said, I'm not going to look at one more of those things until it's got majorettes in it. <laughs> you couldn't make it up with those guys. You just couldn't make it up. Hey, uh, Ira, yeah, uh, Halloween, you, you, you like it or not? You, you like it? Do you still dress up? You, you get out candy? Do you like seeing the kids? you like it? No? Uh, my wife's over it, Clark. Uh, she's closing the blinds. She's closing the lights. We ain't answering the, the door. The dog's going crazy, Cosmo. Every time somebody <laughs> rings the bell. But growing up, Clark, I used to wear my uh, Mickey Mantle outfit, and uh, and I and it worked very well for me. And uh, Ian, what was your best outfit? Uh, I once went as Jim Carrey uh, during the Cable Guy uh, with the <laughs> basketball scene with the short shorts. I had about ten minutes before a college party. I had to go figure something out. So you got any video? Uh, Ian, any I, video I, I got I got some photos. This is this is. 2004, 2005, so we were still taking the cameras out and snapping photos then. So I, I, I will unearth those. Well, if you're still the cable guy, we could use you up here in Connecticut, Ian, because uh, our Yes Network is all scrambled. Maybe that has something to do with the way the Yankees played. Okay, well, we didn't come here to talk Raiders or Ghosts and Goblins. We're here to talk Miami Dolphins. Ira, as in the 1972 Miami Dolphins, who were honored at last weekend's game with Pittsburgh, and who are the subjects of a book by Marshall John Fisher entitled 17 and 0 Miami 1972 and the NFL's only perfect season. Marshall joins us today from his home in Western Massachusetts. Marshall, first of all, thanks for joining us. Secondly, let me get to this. You I understand you grew up in Miami. 
You worked as a sports writer there, but you were educated at Brandeis. You once lived in Boston and you now live in Western Mass. So why did you choose to write about the Dolphins rather than the New England Patriots and or Tom Brady? Good question. Well, first of all, I got to say, I wasn't much of a sports writer. I, I worked at a, a little paper in Homestead for about four months after college. But That counts. That counts. <laughs> that's about it for my sports writing <laughs> yeah. experience. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Miami and, uh, you know, I was nine years old during the perfect season, 72. And it, I think that season had a great impact on everyone living down there or for, certainly football fans. And I think above all kids, we kids who were growing up then, it was just such a huge thing and it, it made a lasting impression. And I always, always wanted to write about them. You know, I went to college at Brandeis, as you said, up in the cold North. And uh, it, I don't think it's a coincidence that the, the one I was taking creative writing classes and, and my professor was saying how, you know, I write well, but I wasn't really passionate about, didn't seem like I was really engaged with the subject or passionate about it. So I said, I was going to show them and I wrote the best story I could write. And it was called 17 and 0. And it was a short story about a kid older than I had been, but like a 17 year old growing up during the, in Miami during the perfect season. And that's the story that kind of got me into the creative writing major. And, and so I think it's no coincidence that team had a big effect on me. And I always intended to write a book about them. I, you know, I kind of thought about it for the 20th, the 30th, the 40th anniversary. Finally, with the 50th anniversary, uh, I finally, you know, got around to do it and got a contract a few years ago to do that. And um, so that was always, you know, that's the team that I always wanted to write about. Yeah, I've lived in New England a long time, but I never became a Patriots fan. Ian will be hard, <laughs> hard pressed to uh, understand that. Did you get an A on that paper, by the way? Uh, I think so. Yeah, that's a long time ago. But <laughs> <laughs> Marshall, your uh, your book landed on my doorstep about a week ago. Uh, I can't put it down. Uh, I'm four or five chapters in, young man. Um, and I got to say, Marshall, the early theme for me, which it, it just comes off every page, the obsession of Don Shula with that Super Bowl loss to Dallas yeah. and, and the way they felt, and he kept drilling it in all training camp in, in the summer of 72. I'll tell you what shocked me a little bit about it, Marshall. Now, look, he, 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 he his Colts lost to the Jets, which was an upset. Uh, Miami losing uh, to Dallas was not an upset. The Cowboys had a heck of a team. Miami was young. They weren't quite ready yet. Um, yet, uh, I don't remember Shula screaming at the 69 Colts. You got to know what it felt like. And, of course, they didn't have a very good year, Marshall, in 69. I think they lost their first two games, That's Marshall. Right. So, why did that loss get to Shula that hard when, Marshall, you and I might say, hey, he lost to a better team? Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, I think at one point in the book, I compare him to Captain Ahab, uh, uh, just obsessed with getting his white whale. Absolutely. He, you know, Shula had become the youngest head coach in the NFL in, uh, I think, 63. He took over the Colts. And he had some great years with them, uh, including winning the NFL championship. But as you said, that was the third year they had to play the Super Bowl against the AFL champion. were humiliated against the Jets. And then the owner turned against them. Everybody turned against him after that. Um, and he was that's why he was very uh, willing to come down to Miami. Then he loses again. As you say, that was not an upset to Dallas, but the guy who can't win the big one. You know, he's the he's he's no he's had been known as the premier coach in the NFL, but 
never went all the way. And he just, he became absolutely obsessed with getting back and winning the Super Bowl. And the thing is, he was able to communicate that monomania to each and every player. And they all said the same thing. I mean, Vern Den Herder told me how on the flight home from New Orleans after Super Bowl six, he went up and down the aisle. He was talking to every player and saying, remember how you feel right now. Don't ever feel that way again. And he said that in meetings and they came back for the first day of training camp and Mercury Morris was laughing about they walk into the first day of camp and he's showing the films of the Super Bowl and he's saying, don't ever let yourself feel like you felt after that again. So he was a great motivator. He was a great communicator and motivator. And he got every one of those guys to feel the same way he did. Marshall, let's get into it uh, right now in 72. Marshall, week three. I mean, it didn't take very long. Week three. They're yeah. going to Minnesota. The Vikings had a very good team. Very good. Marshall, you know, they had the, the purple people eaters and Tarkenton. And yeah. talk a little bit about Marshall, how that game turned at, at the end. It was a guy, Bob Lertzimer, used to play with the Giants. I don't even know why he was in the game, Marshall. He's a reserve. That's right. Uh, but somebody <laughs> must have got hurt. Uh, talk yeah. about that game at Minnesota week three. Yeah, you know, uh, people talk about an early, uh, easy schedule for that team, but it didn't look that way really before the season, especially the first part of the schedule. They had to go to Kansas City, play a Super Bowl contender, beat them. And the third week, they had to travel and play another Super Bowl contender, the Vikings. Tough, tough game. Zonka said it was the toughest game he'd ever played in. You know, he got nailed and by, uh, I forget, uh, uh, the linebacker. But um, tough, tough defensive game. The Purple Leaders, Purple People Leaders against the no-name defense. Lots of lots of great defense. They go into the fourth quarter. Uh, they're down by eight, and there's no two-point conversion. So they need two scores in the fourth quarter. And uh, the first one, they're on the first drive, um, they had like a third and uh, 25 or something, and they ran a reverse pass with Marlon Briscoe, who would have been a great quarterback, but now he's their wide receiver. And he, he gets the pitch out from kick, and he throws a long pass. Didn't get a first down, but got him close enough for a field goal by Gary Premian, which uh, even Coach Shula didn't realize was the longest of Gary's career at that point, 51-yarder. He nails that through. Then the final drive, there was that roughing the passer call on Lertzema, um, which he, you know, the rest of his life, uh, you know, still uh, complaining that it was a bad call. But, of course, what lineman ever said, oh, that was a good call, I roughed the passer. <laughs> you know, uh, these things can go either way. But that was a big call. It helped them, you know, and they got, but they got down the field. And they got down to the three-yard line, and uh, everyone's looking for every, – even the Dolphin players are looking for Zonka up the middle. And uh, Greasy brings in both tight ends, calls the fake. Fake to Zonka, easy pass over the top to Mandich to win the game by two points. So that was the closest game of the season. It could have ended right there. Could be no perfect season, no book for me. But uh, luckily they, they squeezed through that one, and that was the, tough, that was the toughest one. We're speaking with Marshall Fisher on the eye test for two. And um, Marshall's got a great book out now called 17 and 0 Miami 1972. And the NFL's only perfect season timely because it's the 50th anniversary of that team. And Marshall, um, Ira brings up a good question about Super Bowl three versus Super Bowl six. I, I was a diehard Colts fan and I, I thought it was going to be an easy walk in, in Super Bowl three. Uh, shocked to see the results. My mom agreed not to let me go to school the next day because I was so humiliated. That's true. I, I couldn't go to school. Um, and I, I couldn't believe that 
they were beaten. You know, Earl Morrow is such a good quarterback. Uh, Unitas was done by that time, but still, um, the, the Colts are far better in my mind, and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't face that. Yeah. But I'm wondering, in terms of what Shula went through, do you think that determination to, to, to lap the field in, in 1972 was more about six Super Bowl six or more about three? Because some of those Colts had never gotten over it. We talked to Mike Curtis several years ago. Of course, Mike has passed on. Mike Curtis never got over that, never got over it. And it tainted some of those Colts too, because they were always held up as sort of, this is the team that caved to the AFL. Yeah, I think it's both though. You know, it's true when you look at Super Bowl six, you know, it's not, Dallas was great and they, it was their turn to win. They had lost the year before they were really motivated. That's not a terrible loss. In fact, the first half was pretty close. It was just in the second half it got away from them. But for some reason, Shula also looked on Super Bowl six as equally humiliating. I don't know, maybe because he still hadn't won it. Yeah. On Super Bowl three, you know, he had a veteran team, and he just couldn't get them fired up for that game. He, they thought they'd won the NFL. They were obviously going to kill the Jets, and they just he just couldn't. And he was a young coach. He couldn't get them to focus and work hard and be really serious about that game, even though he was, I think, I don't think he took it lightly, but his team, I think did. He, he just failed to motivate them in that game. And I think he felt he blamed himself for that. Yeah. Jimmy Orr is still alone in the end zone, waving his arm. Yeah. I'm open. He throws yeah, it to Earl, Morrow Hill was, yeah, Earl didn't see him. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, you know, for Earl Morrow, of course, he didn't, Earl didn't get to play in the Super Bowl seven, but he was such a huge part of that perfect season. So he had, and of course, he had also won a Super Bowl for Baltimore before that. But, um, uh, but yeah, I think in answer to your question, I just think it's both. I think it just it built up and built up. Okay. And, well, that's certainly something you've been working on for a long time. As you said, you were a fan at the age of nine. You watched this team. Uh, what did you learn going through the process of this about those Dolphins that you didn't know before? I don't know how long it took you to put this together, but. I guess yeah. years. Yeah, a few uh, years. Uh, well, yeah. One reason I wanted to do it was I, I wanted to find out uh, about this team because I, you know, I had just been, I was a little kid back then and they loomed in my mind as this very, very special group, you know, these incredible guys, you know, who had done this. And yeah. I thought, is that just nostalgia or were they just a good team that kind of things went the right way for them and, you know, it happened? But I think what, you know, what I found out is they really were a special group of people that it wasn't just a normal football team, they were really smart almost all across the board. It was a very intelligent team. Uh, the guys became, one became a doctor, a couple of lawyers, a lot of successful businessmen, really very bright people. Um, uh, not in every case. I mean, uh, Jim Kick loved to point out how he himself was not a smart guy, but, but yeah, he was an excellent player. But uh, so I think one thing I learned is that they actually were a very a special group of people. Uh, I also learned a lot about Miami back then. The book is not just about the, football but it's, I try to weave in the story of what's going on in, in the country and Miami was kind of a focal point for everything going on in, in the country since both conventions were held there that year um, Nixon was down there a lot at the Winter White House and uh, so a lot, a lot Miami was kind of a focal point that year um, but I learned about how different Miami was back then uh, and and about how for instance a lot of black players didn't want to move down there they, they were not happy to be traded down there especially Paul Warfield I mean he did not want to go uh, they did not see Miami as a hospitable place for African-Americans. Um, they were all happy afterwards that they went, even Paul Warfield, leaving his favorite team that he played for, the Browns. But he was actually 
very grateful to have gotten to play for Shula and those great teams. But, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of stuff to be learned while researching. Marshall, speaking about Paul Warfield, who, uh, you know, might be the, the, the classic wide receiver in terms of style. Yeah. Uh, Paul, the, the more, uh, Marshall, the more you look at the Dolphins, 72, 70, even 73, maybe even more. Um, I mean, the guy, they were throwing 14 passes a game. I mean, totally lopsided, 75% runs. You talk about balance, forget about it. So, Marshall, my question, simple. Paul Warfield, guy who averaged 20 yards a catch for his career. That doesn't happen. Marshall, as the years went on, he got the rings on his fingers. But did he ever chafe? Did he ever complain? Hey, how about throwing me some footballs? Never, never. He was one of the most unselfish players ever, along with Bob Greasy. And when uh, I talked to Paul Warfield, he said to me, you know, Bob loved to throw the ball, and I I loved to catch the ball, but we, we wanted to win. And Bob knew that. They, they were just so good at the run that the way for them to give them the best chance of winning any game was to mostly run the ball. You know, even when you throw, even if you have a great passing attack, when you throw, you, you have the chance of interceptions and things going wrong. Um, but you're right. You know, I think they had actually had a great passing game. They, I think Greasy was a great quarterback. Um, Paul Warfield, the best wide receiver. Uh, Howard Twilley was superb. He was like, you know, one of these, like guys like Amendola or Wes Welker, you know, just a right. clutch, clutch. He, he had he had the NCAA record for all-time receptions. Uh, and then they had Marlon Briscoe, who was an all-pro for Buffalo the year before. So, you know, the best offensive line. So I think they if they needed to pass, they could have passed all the time. They would have probably would have had the number one passing attack. But they were so good at the run. And you say, as you said, in 73, it was even more so. I think in the playoffs, the two playoff games in the Super Bowl, I think he tried – about six passes a game, you know, Absolutely. Uh, they just had become so efficient at running the ball with that offensive line and those runners that there's just nothing the other team could do. Marshall, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree with me on this point uh, in researching the 72 Dolphins. All, all paths lead to Don Shula, Marshall. You, you can't get around it. You can't get around Shula. Uh, and in that regard, Marshall, you, you always used to hear about the Dolphins in the 70s, maybe even the 80s. Least penalized team, least penalized team. They don't get the yellow flags. They don't do this. Marshall, is it intimidation by Shula with the officials or is it uh, the obsession with Shula about not drawing flags? The latter. It's the uh, remarkable attention to detail. Um, you know, if they, in practice, you know, if they made any mistake in practice, they got chewed out. They get chewed out from the, Shula might be on the other practice field and he'd see Zonka or somebody make a mistake and he'd be screaming across from the other field. You can't do that. He, I think it was the attention to detail and not just Shula. I think he was a really great, he was an incredible coach. He also had an amazing staff that year with Monty Clark on the offensive line and Bill Arnsberger on the defense. And I think they were just as much a part of that. I think it was the coaching uh, regarding the penalties. Yeah. We're with author Marshall Fisher on the eye test for two. It's the 50th anniversary of the 72 Miami Dolphins, the undefeated Miami Dolphins. And Marshall, you talk about the great Bob Greasy, but the guy who got my attention on that team, obviously, because sure. I was a Colts fan, was Earl Morrill. Uh, and I thought Earl Morrill, and it still do, was one of the most unsung quarterbacks in NFL history. We know what he did in 1968. He rescued the Colts after Johnny U went down. He was 13-1 and one that year, named the league MVP. 
Then he comes back in 72, follows Shula down in Miami. You know what happened there. I think all 11 games, including the playoffs that he started, he won. And yet, when they played the, the, the conference championship game, he's replaced at the half, right? Greasy comes in, he sits down. And then Shula starts Greasy over Morrill in the Super Bowl. A, why did he do it? And how difficult a decision was that for Shula? Uh, uh, <laughs> it must have been gut-wrenching. You know, so much was going through his head there because he had been through it, right? He had been through it with the same guy, with Earl Morrill, you same know, guy. in 68. And should he have, I think Unitas was ready for that Super Bowl. Uh, and he, should he have brought him in? And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people second-guessed him. Uh, also, a lot of things going through his head. You know, the same thing happened to him when, as a player for Paul Brown in Cleveland. Shula himself got to play when uh, James, Tommy James, I think, was the D, DB that he was behind. He got hurt. So Shula got in and, and played great for like eight games. And, and then when James came back, Brown just put him back in and Shula was livid. You know, I, I, I've been playing so great. So that had to be in his head. All kinds of things had to be running through his head knowing everyone would second guess whatever happened if it didn't go well. But, and he did stay with Morrill. You know, Greasy was ready by the last game of the regular season. Right. They didn't just immediately put him in. He stuck with Morrill. The, the first playoff game, they, they were a little stale. They were not, they were a little nervous, I think, actually. Didn't have a great game, but they came, you know, they came back and won it. And then against Pittsburgh, they were really sputtering in the first half. And, and I think finally he said, you know what? I got the all, all pro quarterback ready to go and, Often making a change sparks yeah. some energy in the offense too. So clearly he did the right thing. Now, after the AFC championship, he had to then he had to decide. But I don't think anyone expected Morrill to start the Super Bowl. You know, Greasy was back. He played well in the second half. He threw a long pass to Warfield and commanded the offense. He showed he was totally back. So it was fine. But you know, poor Earl Morrill, uh, you know, Greasy went to him and said, I'm I'm gonna start Bob. And he goes, All right, but I I feel like I, you know, I deserve it, but I'll go with whatever you say. He was a team man all right. the way. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because he was a quiet guy, and yet here he yeah. is benched at halftime and of the, the championship game and doesn't play the, the biggest game. It could be a redemption game from him as well yeah. and doesn't yeah. play that. And I just sort of how, wondered how that went down with Earl. But, but uh, he was such a relaxed – he was such a good guy. He's kind of, kind of a good old boy. You know, he's really always relaxed and – and uh, but he had that had that way on him, you know. A lot of people thought of him as just a backup, a career backup. Yeah, that's right. Even though he actually started like 200 games or something, but um, you know, <laughs> it had to hurt. But he he was a team man all the way. I've got one more, Marshall. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Love the book, and uh, can't can't wait for your next one, my friend. Uh, maybe you'll do one on the 07 uh, Patriots. Who? Uh... <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, when you grow up, when you grow up a Dolphins fan, it's just you can't ever become a Patriots fan. Although my mother did; she's the one person. Who did. <laughs> you can call that one 18 and one. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> uh, so, Marshall, I'm, I'm here in Tampa, and you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, Don Shula opened up his, uh, uh, you know, steakhouse down here in Tampa, and I was working for the Tribune. Uh, you know, the hometown paper. And uh, so they sent me out. Um, hey, Don, uh, you can have lunch with Shula. Now, am I going to turn that down, Marshall? Come on. Um, and I knew who was picking up the tip also. <laughs> so, you know, we have a great chat, you know, and Shula appreciates the fact that I, I go back before 1994, you, right. you know, <laughs> unlike a lot of these yeah, uh, right. modern-day sports writers. But anyway, Marshall, you know, He's having a drink, and I almost make him spit out the thing because 
I, I, I actually had the audacity. And I guarantee you've been thinking this too at, at, at times. I go, Don, with all due respect, are you sure the 73 team wasn't better than the 72 <laughs> team? Yeah. He, he thought about it and he said, Ira, you, 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 t- you know, you, you're trying to mess with perfection. You can't do it. Now, Marshall, I got to say, the 72 team led the league in scoring offense and scoring defense. They were, that's not a flash in the pan. Um, but I think you can make an argument, Marshall. Where do you stand on that? You were still in Miami at that time. No, well, I don't think there's any question. And uh, several of the players have said this, and I agree with them. They were better in 73. There's no question. Although it's funny because, you know, like Zonka will say, we got to be the greatest team ever. 17, perfection says it all. You can't beat that. But then he'll also say, well, we were better in 73. So <laughs> that's contradictory. <laughs> uh, but they were just, they were definitely more dominant in 73. They lost one really close one, or the second game of the season out in Oakland, 12 to 7. After that, there was nothing. I mean, they, they lost one that didn't matter at the end when they, did, they rested a lot of people. And every, everything else, there was just no close games. Even in the playoffs games were not close at all, or the Super Bowl. And, you know, they could just, they could just run. They didn't have to throw a single pass, really, in the playoffs and Super Bowl. They could have just run it. But, if, you know, Greasy would throw five or six passes just to, for form's sake. I think that was the greatest team. And it's funny because at several interviews, people have said to me, are they the greatest team of all time, the 72 Dolphins? And I said, they're not even the greatest Dolphin team ever. <laughs> 73 was better. You know, Ira, it's funny you mention that because if you talk to people in and around Pittsburgh about the Steelers of the 70s, They'll say the best team was a 76 team, which did not win a Super Bowl. Oh, and remember wow. what happened then? They lost Franco and they lost Rocky Blyer in the yes. playoffs. And, and Chuck Noll said, but we're, we're going in without him. Um, and today, maybe they would have played. I don't know. But but Chuck Noll played without him. And of course, they lost. But they say that team was the best of the group. And you look at the defense over the last nine games. Yes. Astonishing what they did. I think if yes. the opponents had something like a total, and I'm just doing this off the top of my head, but I think it was 28 points total in the last nine games. I mean, they had five shutouts. It was really good, but uh, uh, they didn't They didn't get the Super Bowl and, and sort of like what you're talking about, the Dolphins, the 73 team. A couple of last ones for me, Marshall. One is uh, I look back at that Super Bowl seven team, and, um, and I think they were underdogs going into the game against Washington, right? And, and so oh. I, and hmm. I guess I, I'm wondering, here's a team that's 16 and 0 against a team that was, I think, 11 and three during that year. First of all, how does that happen? And secondly, how much did that motivate them? Oh, yeah, a lot. Now, not everyone picked Washington, but like Jimmy the Greek did and several other. They, yeah. Uh, Ira uh, picked him. Ira picked Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Washington, I think they were 12 and 2 uh, in the, that year. And they, uh, they were a great team. But um, people, you know, a lot of these older sports writers just thought that NFL was still tougher than the AFL, even though it was all NFL now. Okay. And, uh, and they had a tougher schedule. But that absolutely motivated them, as well as an article that came out that day in L- the L.A. paper by um, Jim, uh, the, the great sports Jim writer. Murray. Jim Murray. Yeah, Jim, Jim Murray. Uh, uh, kind of making fun of them, just ridiculing them. Uh, you know, it almost Jim. was like a humor piece. I don't know. But that made them mad. And, uh, and of course, that they were going for, for perfection. They were extremely motivated. Um, and that game really, you know, ended up 14-7 because of Garrow's flub. But uh, that could have been 24 nothing easily. Yeah. Easily. Uh, some great place called back. Anyway, what could have been, but they kind of dominated most of that game. Yeah. Um, I want you to straighten something out for me. Last question here. Every year around this time, we talk about the undefeated teams. All right. Philadelphia is undefeated. If you look at their schedule, 
they're going to be favored as last week's guest, Sal Palantonio, told us the rest of the season. They'll be favored every game the rest of the season. And they really don't play a tough opponent until December 4th against Tennessee. So right. people say, well, could they run the table? Well, they're not going to run the table because people just don't run the table anymore. Um, so my question to you is every year, does the annual champagne toast that the Dolphins have to yeah. celebrate the last remaining undefeated team when it loses. But I've been told that's a myth. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, or, or at least it's been uh, it's a greatly exaggerated uh, response to something that may have happened at one point. You know, I think at one point, uh, Dick Anderson and Bonacati and a few guys might get together. And the Greasy was involved too, I think, yeah. Yeah, and they, you know, maybe toast it. But, you know, I, I, I think that was just for a short while. Um, but you know what? I'm sure there are phone calls. You know, it's got to happen because well, just think about it. You're with a group of guys, your best buddies. You had this team that did something no one has ever done before or since. Of course, when the last team loses and, and they are still the only ones ever, of course, you're going to call each other up and, you know, raise a glass. I mean, how could you not? Right. So I, I don't think it was something obnoxious that they they were not toasting other people, someone else losing. They were just kind of amongst themselves celebrating the fact that, you know, we still did something that has never, ever been done. Well, Marshall, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Uh, thanks for the memories and best of luck with the book. I appreciate being here. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Marshall. That was Marshall John Fisher, author of 17 and 0 Miami, 1972 in the NFL's only perfect season. And Ira, I, I, I remember more about Earl Morrill that year than I do Bob Greasy. And I wasn't covering the team, but I certainly was a Colts fan, as I mentioned. And I loved watching Earl Morrill play. And he was unbeaten that year. I mean, he did a great job. And it had to be tough to sit down when you haven't lost a game and played most of them in an unbeaten season. And that's right, Clark. And don't forget, during that 68 season, he was the league MVP. No question. Threw the most touchdown passes that year, too. You know, had a bad day. Against that, the Jets, it happens. It happened. It had a bad day. Tom Mitchell going in the end zone, too. Throw the ball behind him. And, oh, yeah. they're cheering for Earl. They love Earl. You know, I wanted to do I was there. But um, there's not a game I was at, Ira. I, I was at a practice. It was a practice. I want to keep it in sort of in keeping with what we're doing today with the Miami Dolphins. Now, this wasn't the 72 Miami Dolphins. It was the 1984 Miami Dolphins. And it wasn't Earl Morrill. It was Dan Marino. And I was at the Super Bowl in San Francisco. And as you remember, I think you were probably covering that game. The game was played in Palo Alto. The, um, the Dolphins practiced in Oakland. There was an NFL pool reporter uh, that week, as there always is for Super Bowls. That was me. I, I was the pool reporter, the NFL pool reporter covering the Dolphins. So I go each day across the Bay Bridge to Oakland Alameda Stadium. And that's where they're practicing. So I think it was maybe that Thursday that they're practicing. And it's a, a two-hour practice or so. And afterwards, you're told you only talk to Shul afterwards. Can't talk to anyone else. Okay, talk to Shoes. Ask him about what's going on here. Marino's throwing the ball to Duper and Clayton after practice. Come back. No big deal. Follow the report. I walk into the press room. And all of a sudden, in those days, there were about 500 people in the press room. As you know, there's a mass exodus. And they're all coming at me. They're all coming at me. There he is. They point at me. And I'm looking around and said, me? And these guys said, get him behind the NFL desk now. And I said, me? Yeah. And they're shoving me behind this desk, behind the curtains. And I said, what's going on? They said, what's going on is that a photographer at that practice overheard Dan Marino say he was suffering dizzy spells. And I said, 
Okay, what's that have to do with me? They're going to ask you about it. And I said, well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not supposed to talk to Marino. You know that. We know that. You tell them what you saw. And I said, well, I just talked to you know, Shula. I, I, I watched Marino, I walked practice. I watched and did everything I was supposed to do. That's fine. You tell them that. It's your press conference. Okay. So I walk out there, and now people are firing questions left and right. Dizzy spells, Marino, say, well, how do you look? And, and, and at the end, I'll never forget it. <laughs> They're asking me questions about Marino. And, and finally, Mike Antonucci from the San Jose Mercury News, who I knew. I knew Mike Antonucci. And I later, in fact, it was um, 10 years later, I went to work at the Merc covering the 49ers. Mike Antonucci asked me, did you talk to Marino? <laughs> and I said, and I said, no, I, I didn't. I just watched him practice, watched him throw the ball after practice. And he goes, then why are we talking to you? And I hit the ceiling. I said, because you asked to talk to me. I didn't want to come up here. You asked to talk to me. You asked me to talk to you. And the rules are that I don't talk to anyone but the coach. And I talked to him and no one knew about it. I didn't know a photographer heard this guy. So I became the subject of next day story. I can just imagine Ira Miller boring in with those eyes. Oh, he was there. Ira was there. Yeah, yeah, he was there. But uh, that was a tough day. And then I, I sort of appreciated what some of these guys go through when we put them in the dentist chair and start drilling. Uh, Ira, can you top that one? Because we've got, you know, final thoughts coming up. I can't top that one, but I can say this. I asked Tom Brady a question uh, at one buck place. Whoa, and, congratulations. And, and I got a real answer, Clark. That might be the first time this season. All right, I got a real it? answer. I asked him if I told you in August that seven games into your season, you are still looking for your team's first touchdown in an opening quarter. In an oh. opening quarter, they got right. zilch. Wow. I said, wouldn't you be astonished? And what would it be like grabbing an early lead? And he talked about how, you know, when you're behind. It inhibits your game plan a bit. And when you're ahead, you have the full disposal uh, and all kinds of options. At least I got an answer from the GOAT. How do you like that, Clark? Congratulations. I love it. Well, now I've got a question for you, and, and I want a real answer, and Ian as well. We know that Philadelphia is the best team in the NFC, right? The best team in the NFC. Buffalo's the best team in the NFL, I think. But Philadelphia is unbeaten. So the question here is, who's the second best team in the NFC? I don't know who it is. Is it Dallas? I mean, is it San Francisco? I saw San Francisco get embarrassed last weekend. Is it the Giants? The G-Men? Who is it, Ira? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Glendon go first here, Clark. Okay. Go ahead, Ian. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, That's I, a honestly, real answer. I, I, real I honestly, answer. Thank I, you, Tom Brady. I, you. I really don't know because it's like I want, I want to say the Giants, but it's like, you know, it's the Giants. I, I'm not dismiss, dismissing what they've done so far, but – I just I don't know, and and normally we can always fall back on, in this case Brady and Rodgers, but yep. both of their teams are spinning in circles. So honestly, I have no earthly idea. Seattle, maybe. Well, Clark, wow. like, Clark right. I, I don't understand what's going on with the Niners the last couple of weeks. I, I don't get it. They got a lot of injuries, and plus, listen, Jimmy Garoppolo was kept away from the team in all training camp. He didn't take a snap. So people are piling on Jimmy Garoppolo. Well, this is this is what happens. We don't have a quarterback take a snap in training camp. He didn't have a training camp. So he's learning on the fly. He's better than what he shows. He's struggling some right now. And, and they've got injuries on defense. They suffered a bad one last week. But 
they'll be okay. Now, do I think they'll be good enough to beat Philadelphia? I don't know. Someone's going to emerge here. To me, I think it's Dallas probably because I think Dallas back. because they got a good defense. Clark. They've got a they good got defense. defense. And and when's the last time or the only time that Mike McCarthy had a top five defense? 2010. What happened? They went to the Super Bowl. Of course, they had Aaron Rodgers then. But um, Clark, anyway. the, Buc- the Bucks could win this division at eight and nine. Oh, they, I know they, they could. could. I know they could. And they're playing like an eight and nine team right now. Yeah. That's why it's scary, guys. It's Halloween. <laughs> That's going to do it. If you want to listen to this or any I Test for Two podcast, just go to the itestfor2.com or fullpresscoverage.com and you can. Otherwise, we're going to catch you right here at the I Test for Two next week.